not only are we at the what I think is the low point of the Bible, I think this story is the worst one in the whole Bible. Um, there's a couple of them that are are in the in the bottom five as far as I'm concerned, and but this one this one's the worst. I hate this story. But um, I've I've got something to present to you as a way to approach it, but it's very complicated. It's complex. So I've like color coded it. I've tried to make it as easy as possible, but you're going to want to really pay attention to the screen and how I'll explain it as I go, of course. But um, at the end, before we go into the breakout groups, I will ask you if you have any questions so that we can go back through the in the presentation if we need to and 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 look at anything because I'm scared to death I'm going to um, confuse you really badly so I don't want to do that and part of the problem is um, part of what you need to know to understand this story is what happens in the parts of the Bible we haven't got to yet so you don't really, I can't really cover all of that easily. You know, I'm having to just pick out little bits and say, well, this happens in this past and this happens and this has to do with this. And, and so, so this might be a lesson that you end up wanting to put a bookmark on and come back to and listen after we get to all that other stuff. Um, it might make even more sense. I, I'm hoping it will actually make sense today, but um, we shall see. All right, this very last part of the book of Judges is not about heroes at all. In fact, it's so different than the rest of the book that many scholars call it an epilogue. And I agree with this. The stories in the epilogue are related to each other. There's two stories here that we're going to cover, um, but they have one single purpose, and that is to demonstrate how utterly depraved Israel has become. So the two main stories are the story of Micah and the Levite and the story of the Levite's concubine. And I think both of these stories are allegories. And I'll show you why I think that. The first allegory tracks very closely with Israel's late history that you can find at the end of the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles uh, and the events that the allegory are based on and are common commenting on uh, is the story of King Hezekiah's interactions with the Babylonians. While the second allegory is a commentary and um, based on God's message to Israel during that time, specifically the prophet Hosea, Hosea's message. So according to Judges 18.30, the epilogue to Judges this, that we're studying today was written after the reign of King Hezekiah. In fact, it was written after the nation of Israel was conquered by their enemies and carried off into exile. That's a spoiler alert right there. And, um, and that actually, I think, is why it was written as an allegory in the first place. The epilogue is written for discouraged, bereft people hundreds of years after the time of Judges. And these people are now in exile in foreign lands. So the author is writing to people who are in exile, and he's writing in a period of time several hundred years after the time of Judges. 
the the story just gets put into the book of Judges because the whole book of Judges was written at that time. It was written down and compiled. Um, and so it's meant as a cautionary tale. It's a, 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 a way for them to remember, to burn into their memory, to never, ever forget how they got into their predicament in the first place. So this epilogue in Judges is a dark tale of what happens when you follow idols rather than God. So here's the first story, the story of Micah and the Levite. This is the allegory part. So once upon a time, there was a man named Micah. His name means who is like God. And that's our first hint that this is a story about those who had set themselves up in place of God. Micah is from the hill country of Ephraim, which means doubly fruitful. It's in the center part of Israel. So um, obviously this would, you know, is symbolic of the promised land. And as the story opens, Micah has stolen a huge sum of silver from his mother. After she curses the silver, Micah becomes fearful and confesses. But rather than being angry, his mother is relieved. She takes part of the silver and has a solid silver idol made with it. Then she gives the idol and the rest of the silver to Micah so he can set up a household shrine for them. Micah does this gladly, buys a bunch of idols um, in addition, like wood idols with silver over them, in addition to this solid silver one that his mother commissioned. And he even installs one of his sons as priest of the shrine. Then the text says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, this is a text marker. If you remember, up to this point, the refrain has always been, and Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? Remember that? It's all over the book of Judges. But this new refrain is different, and it links both of the stories in the epilogue together. The new refrain is so important, scholars have even given it its own name. It's called the monarchic refrain because, because of its mention of a king. So sometime after Micah sets up his shrine with its ephod and silver idol and all those other household gods, a Levite comes wandering by. The Levite is one of thousands of unemployed Levites. They're supposed to live on the tithes taken from sacrifices the Israelites make to God. But you know already that that whole sacrificial system has broken down. Remember that the Levites are also supposed to assist the priests in the tabernacle with the sacrifices and cleaning up after the sacrifices and providing the muscle whenever the tabernacle has to be packed up and moved. But think about that. They're in the promised land now. The tabernacle is stationary, so there's nothing to move. The Levites have been given property in towns all over Israel, but they've not been given any land, so they have no way to make a living. So when Micah offers this wandering Levite work as a priest in his household shrine, the Levite jumps at the chance. As the first scene comes to a close, Micah himself installs the Levite. Rather than God investing the Levite with authority to minister, Micah gives his own authority to the Levite. And what is tragic is that Micah thinks this will please God. No wonder the author closes the scene with the monarchic refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. 
Now we move to scene two of the story of Micah and the Levite. This is the meat of the story. The tribe of Dan is trying to find some place to settle. The Philistines have made it impossible for them to live in their allotted land. So they send out five spies to find suitable land elsewhere. The Danites come to Micah's house in Ephraim and recognize the dialect and accent of the Levite. They realize he's from their part of the country. The Levite shows them all the riches of Micah's shrine, and they ask him to bless their efforts, which he does. The spies leave Micah's house, and as they move north, they spy out the area of Laish, which means lion. They see it as a good country, and even better, it's undefended. The spies return home and urge the tribe of Dan to take Laish for themselves. A contingent of 600 Danites, along with their families and all their household goods, set out to migrate to Laish and conquer it. They get as far as Micah's house, and the spies tell them about all the riches they saw there. Of course, the people send the spies in to take the riches. Once inside, they're caught by the Levite, who challenges them, but the spies cleverly bribe him to come with them and be their priest instead. And so it is the Levite himself who despoils Micah's shrine. It's in this part of the story that Micah's Levite is identified as the son of Gershom, son of Moses. If you make the mistake of thinking this epilogue is some sort of literal history, then this would make you want to place the story way back, very early, soon after the Israelites conquered Jericho. But I don't think that's what kind of story this is. I think this detail is added to convey that even Moses' own son and grandson were pagan idol worshipers. Again, symbolic of all the Levites as religious leaders in Israel. As you can imagine, the Danites do conquer the undefended town of Laish, and they rename it Dan, of course, which means God has judged me. I wondered if Dan was significant to the allegory. So I looked up the tribe in the reference chart in the study guide, and I found that Dan's blessing was, quote, to provide justice for the people. But that's followed by this cryptic sentence. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backwards. That was part of their blessing. So it makes sense that in the allegory, the tribe of Dan represents Israel's enemies, plundering Micah's shrine, carrying off the greedy and dishonest Levite, and taking Laish. So now I'm going to tell you the matching story of historical events as they actually end up happening. So you'll recognize the parallels immediately. One note before we begin. The author in Judges is pretty much ignoring the fact that Israel eventually has a civil war and splits into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. For the purposes of the allegory, the author treats Israel and Judah as a single entity. The Danites represent both of their enemies, the Assyrians who conquer the northern kingdom and the Babylonians who ultimately conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. So, during that time, just before Israel and Judah are taken into captivity, 
their various kings taxed the Israelites heavily and set up places of idol worship all over the country. That was real historical fact. In the allegory, Micah represents these kings. And during all of these kings' reigns, the Lord sends many, many prophets to both Israel and Judah to warn them away from their course of idol worship. The allegory of Micah and the Levite focuses on the time of King Hezekiah and the prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel. Hezekiah himself is a good king, but he's not a wise king. He tries to befriend the powerful Babylonians. He invites them in, shows them all the riches of the temple, all his storehouses of spices and silver and gold. He shows them his entire armory and everything in the palace. Can you imagine? This, of course, the allegory parallel is the five spies seeing the silver and riches in Micah's shrine when they're shown around by the Levite. After the Babylonians leave, the prophet Isaiah chastises King Hezekiah saying, what did you do that for? They're going to come back and carry everything off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And indeed, during the reign of King Hezekiah, both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah are attacked. But by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom falls and all its people are taken into captivity. But Judah, under King Hezekiah, is miraculously spared by God. But I'm afraid it's only a temporary reprieve. A hundred years later or so, the Babylonians do come back and attack and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, destroying the temple and carrying off all the silver and gold furnishings inside it. This obviously is parallel to the spies bringing the tribe of Dan back and looting the shrine, with Micah being helpless to stop, stop them. Furthermore, the prophet Ezekiel in Hezekiah's time speaks of the moral filth of Judah's religious leaders just before the Babylonians invade. And that parallels the treachery of Micah's Levite, who helps the Danites despoil Micah's shrine. The final scene in the allegory of Micah and the Levite reveals the Danites worshiping Micah's idol in Laish, while the entire time the tabernacle of the Lord is ignored. This story closes, and the next story is introduced with the monarchic refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. We're now ready to move to the second story in the allegory. The two stories are linked by having a Levite as the protagonist, but they're two different Levites, so don't get confused here. In the second story, the nation of Israel herself is represented by an unnamed concubine, while the wicked religious leaders are again represented by a Levite. The concubine, it says, quote, plays the harlot against the Levite and returns home to her father. Now, this is fascinating. In this story, God is represented by the concubine's father. He lives in Bethlehem, which literally means house of food. From the Levite's perspective, the concubine is playing the harlot when she leaves him. But those who are hearing the story realize the concubine, aka Israel, is actually rejecting the treacherous Levite and returning to the father who truly loves her. This story is going to parallel that of the prophet Hosea, 
who was a prophet during the reign of Hezekiah. And I, here's where I got to ba- bounce back and forth between the two stories. So I'm going to use a red frame when I'm telling the allegory of Judges, when I'm talking about that. And I'm going to use a blue frame for the parallel story in Hosea. Hopefully that will help you keep it straight. Allegory on the left, real history on the right. Allegory is red, real history is blue. So let's set up what happens to the prophet Hosea. Right at the beginning, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. In Hosea, the prostitute represents Israel, just like the concubine does in Judges. So back to the story in Judges. After four months, the Levite in the allegory goes after the concubine to, quote, speak to her heart and get her to come back to him. She welcomes him back into her father's house. The same thing happens to Israel in the end. Even when the Israelites turn and follow God, their treacherous religious leaders continue to drag the people back into idolatry. So at first, the concubine's father welcomes the Levite in, thinking this might be a sign of a changed heart. But no, the Levite insists on taking the concubine away with him. Here's a parallel excerpt from Hosea. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Pay attention, you leaders. You have been a snare to the people. I know all about you. You have turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Judah's leaders are like neighbors who move boundary stones, and I will pour out my wrath upon them. So in both stories, the religious leaders are the bad guys, dragging Israel into idolatry, and unfortunately, she seems to go willingly. Although the concubine's father tries to delay and prevent the Levite from leaving with the concubine, they finally break away. But they leave very late in the afternoon and end up on the road as night falls. They're near Jebus, home of the fierce Jebusites, a city later named Jerusalem. And they are in grave danger. The Levite decides to press on just a few more miles to Gebeah, a city held by the tribe of Benjamin. Surely they will be safer there than in the hands of the Jebusites. But that safety is an illusion. There is no safety in Israel. As Hosea tells us, the Lord God is against Israel because of her insistence on idol worship. He says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off and no one will rescue them. And this is indeed what ended up happening to the nation, for they did not pay any attention to the prophet Hosea at all. This is also obviously the central message of the allegory, as we'll soon see. So at this point in the allegory, the author inserts an almost verbatim story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead of the town of Sodom, however, the town in the allegory is Gebeah of the tribe of Benjamin. The travelers turn off the road when they get to Gebeah. They wait in the town square for someone to offer hospitality, but they're ignored. I figured it must be significant that the author threw the tribe of Benjamin into the story. So I looked Benjamin up in our reference chart in the study guide. 
Aha, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. This gives us a foreshadowing of where the story is heading. Benjamin must represent Israel's enemies in this story. Finally, a man acknowledges the Levite and his party and tells them they are in danger and persuades them to come home with him. But just like in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, a mob storms his house during the night, demanding that he turn the Levite over to them so they can sexually abuse him. As we discovered way back in class five, the rape of men in this culture is a show of domination, a common act by heterosexual men when humiliating an enemy. It has nothing to do with homosexuality. It has everything to do with violence. In exactly the same way, rape nowadays has nothing to do with love and everything to do with violent domination. The homeowner says, no, don't do this evil thing. Take my daughter and the concubine and do with them whatever you like. Now, if the men in the mob were homosexuals, this offer would make no sense. So this is more evidence that the mob is heterosexual. As horrifying as it is that the man offers his daughter and concubine to be raped, remember that this is an allegory. Israel is both daughter and concubine. Certainly things like this did happen in the A&E, but remember the concubine represents Israel in the allegory. The men continue to storm against the man's home. So the Levite takes matters into his own hands. He grabs his concubine and pushes her out to the man and slams the door behind her. Now this is where the story diverges from the original Sodom and Gomorrah story. And that has to be significant. This is not how God's story of Sodom and Gomorrah went down. The author is making this change as a point that this is the treatment you can expect from idols who do not love you. The concubine is raped and tortured all night long. At daybreak, she is released and collapses on the threshold. She cannot reach safety. It is too late. The Levite gets up early in the morning to travel on alone and literally stumbles over her on the doorstep. He's in a hurry to get out of there. So he says, get up, get up, let's go. But there is no answer. She is dead. The message, of course, is that idols will never save you, nor even show compassion towards you. They are self-consumed. When the Levite gets home, he chops his concubine into 12 pieces and sends her body parts throughout Israel. The exact wording is, quote, he took the knife. And that exact wording is only used one other time in scripture. These are the words when Abraham took the knife to slay Isaac. The difference is that this time there's no one to rescue the victim. She is already dead, thrown to her death by her own master. That's the point. That's why he used the phrase from the story of Abraham and Isaac. The idea of sending body parts throughout Israel as an urgent call to action was apparently a thing back then. We'll run into it again later, although next time it's the body parts of an ox. In our parallel story, God speaks these words to Israel through Hosea the prophet. 
What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning mist, like the early dew that just disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Well, when they get the body parts, all of Israel is horrified. 400,000 fighting men assemble at Mizpah near Gebeah. This is a different Mizpah than the one we saw a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, this Mizpah is the one that we will read across the most in um, the rest of the Bible. The Levite tells his story, completely whitewashing it, not telling how he himself pushed the concubine out the door. He lays the fault entirely on the men of Benjamin in Gebeah. The enraged Israelites demand that the Benjamites turn over the men who murdered the concubine, but the Benjamites refuse. The Israelites decide to gather an army from all of the communities of Israel, and they make solemn vows. We will execute any men who fail to answer the call to fight. In return for their treatment of the concubine, we will wipe out all the women of Benjamin. And we will no longer give our daughters to the men of Benjamin as wives. As is usual, the Israelites consult the Lord before entering into battle. They ask the Lord, who shall lead us? And the Lord answers, Judah. On that day, Israel fights the tribe of Benjamin and Israel loses 22,000 men. Stunned, they go back to the Lord. Should we go to war again tomorrow? And God says, yes. And on that second day, Israel loses 18,000 more men. Stricken, they weep and fast and make offerings to God. And God says, tomorrow I will give them into your hands. This time, Israel sets up an ambush and draws the Benjamites into it. The tribe of Benjamin loses 25,000 men, and Israel proceeds to wipe out their towns and kill all their women and children. Only 600 men of Benjamin escape to the hills. Afterwards, Israel realizes they've completely destroyed one of their 12 tribes, and they begin to grieve. In this, they reflect the heart of God so many years later in Hosea. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in wrath. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. As Israel mourns the loss of the tribe of Benjamin, they try to figure out how they can rebuild the tribe from the 600 men who escaped, but do it without breaking their solemn vows. So they come up with an ingenious, if still barbaric, solution. First, they discover that there were 400 men called to action who failed to show up. So they kill them and give their wives to the Benjamites, but they're still 200 wives short. They swore not to give their daughters to the Benjamites anymore, so someone comes up with the brilliant idea to tell the Benjamites to show up at one of the annual festivals where the girls go out and dance in the fields. They tell the Benjamites that if they happen to accidentally kidnap 200 girls, the Israelites will look the other way. 
And so the tribe of Benjamin is saved. The allegory and the book of Judges ends with the monarchic refrain. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's a horrible set of stories and are undoubtedly based on actual events, but it sure helps to understand that they are allegorical and have a larger, actually positive purpose. Because our time is short, I have barely scratched the surface of all the parallels between the allegory and the historical events. The allegory is intended to remind the exiled Israelites of their own complicity in their destruction and of God's ultimate overwhelming compassion, and his promise to restore them to their homes. This is a new tool for your backpack. When a story seems as off the rails as these do, with no redeeming value whatsoever, and you cannot find any literary reason, such as an intercalation or evidence of multiple sources or even a chiasm, look to see if the story is an allegory. An allegory reframes or retells actual events using symbolic characters for the purpose of highlighting or cementing in their minds what the point is. To use this tool, you you need to think of similar elements in other passages in scripture, historical events that the author might have been aware of. That's really important. Um, You don't get, if you're, if you're, uh, looking, interpreting the old, the Hebrew Bible, um, at a, you cannot jump out to the New Testament and and say, oh, it's an allegory of what of Jesus or whatever. You know, no, you have you have to put yourself in the author's shoes, find out what time period the book was written in. Usually, your Bible will tell you at the a study Bible will tell you that at the introduction to the book. Um, and and determine what historical events have happened to Israel up to that point. What other biblical stories have it ha, does that that author have access to, um, and and use that as a lens to see whether the passage you're trying to interpret might have been written by that particular author as an allegory. So you compare, what you do is you look for similar elements, similar words, similar events. You know, what clued me into this one was the showing of the riches of the shrine um, to the Danites. And I was like, oh man, that's exactly what King Hezekiah did. And I went back and looked and then all of these other parallels began to pop out. So uh, once you've identified the the story that uh, is the historical story that this might be an allegory of, begin to look for any twists or differences that might highlight the central message or the purpose of the allegory, like we we did with the little excerpt from Sodom and Gomorrah that was stuck in the middle of this one. So obviously, this tool is a lot more subjective than the other ones we've been using. There's a lot of room for disagreement. So I use it sparingly. The door is completely open for you to, you know, toss that uh, anything I said during this whole lesson and, and come up with your own ideas about why these stories are in here as an epilogue to the book of Judges. So that was pretty intense, but it's an appropriate end to the dark and barbaric book of Judges. That even in the darkness, God was present. In our breakout sessions today, we'll reflect on the God of the Hebrew Bible 
and on the beliefs people carry about him. So are you still following this? Do you have any questions? Wow. <laughs> That's a lot to take in. <laughs> it, it is. And I'm sorry. I know you got fire hosed. Um, but at least it's on video. You can go back and look at it at your leisure and kind of think it through. And, 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 and you're free to say, that's hogwash, Gail. I don't, I don't think that's what that was at all. So um, it was lightning. That, that makes so much more sense. Like to me, if I had what, what I read and my response initially to how I'm feeling right now is completely different. So I really appreciated that tool and appreciate the context and it makes me um, not want to throw my Bible out the window. <laughs> I really appreciate that as well. That's a good <laughs> um, so what do you say to people who, who, you know, read this and, and, and throw up their hands and say, and that's why I don't study the old Testament, <laughs> you know, um, at this point, we, in terms of storyline, we have covered roughly half of the Hebrew Bible. I know there's a lot of books left, a lot of volume left, but, but in terms of what we've done, we've gone about halfway. So you've got a lot under your belts. What did you, what did you come up with here? Yeah, I would just tell them to fast forward to Revelation. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I want to tell them Ross. A lot of people just skip it entirely and stay only in the New Testament. And what do you say to them? Yeah, I, I would tell them they're kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in here that we need to know, but to make you make them realize that there is a lot of exaggeration in it. Also, context is everything. All right. Yes. Context. Yes. Gail, you have taught me that. And I kept referring to this in our breakout, that class that we did with you on Mark. I asked you specifically, why is the church not teaching Mark like this? And you (laughs) responded to me, you responded to me something about um, a, a literary class in seminary, but it's, it's like a got to get through it class. It's not generally regarded as the way. And I feel honestly, after listening to you and growing up in the churches that I've done, that our churches are getting this wrong, that we're cherry picking stories. We're cherry picking con, you know, little things like Ross said in context. And I've, I've never heard that that's an allegory uh, Yeah, ever. How, how do you, yeah, well, how do you go deep with a TikTok nation? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I think it's possible. I'm sorry if I got to pick on people who watch TikTok. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm a recent person there because there's some stuff in there I like. Good good tutorials, shorter than YouTube, longer than IG. But, Gail, <laughs> you have this gift to do this. And, and, I, and I was telling Marlene and Julia that there's times that I go... Julia or Gail, did you make up that this is an allegory? How come you know this and nobody else does? But you do. You unpack, you reference, you go back and forth. Where is this in our religion, Gail? I feel well, and honestly, let me let me respond to that because all this stuff that I'm giving, the the fact that I think this is an allegory, 
the chiasm in Abraham, the, the you know, the chias, the other chiasm that we we've done. It's these kinds of things. What you're getting is hundred percent original. This is just stuff I aware. that that I gleaned as I'm preparing the lesson for you. I just sit down with it and I read it and I and I pray about it and I start using these tools. So part of it is I think the biggest thing is what you're getting automatically from this class, whether you never pick up one of these tools or use it ever again. What you actually are getting is the understanding of the context and the whole story. But right. to that point, and so that's what people don't get sacrifice. We, we hear all these stories about sacrifice and we think that Old Testament is God wants sacrifice. And three, we're learning, no, we got that wrong. That's what we did, misinterpreting his will. Right. But you're not the only person who studies the Bible. How is we, how are we as a whole not getting this? It's I think just that part very- of it, I think that part of it, honestly, is that um, pastors are afraid to show God in any light other than glorious, best, perfect. And they're afraid to show um, the people of the Bible as um, anything, but kind of on either end of the spectrum, black or white kind sure. of kind of thing as caricatures. Um, and they're afraid that if they come across, I think a lot of it is because they're afraid if they come across a passage, they cannot explain Understand wrap their that they can't simply say that. Sure. sure. So part of it is our fault for the standard to which we hold our pastors. Surely it's, it must be taught in, in seminaries that many maybe most of these stories are allegorical and 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 are not to be taken necessarily literally as factual and and they're not and and many and so that's a big fight you know within the the church um because there are people who say well this whole darn thing is allegorical you know, and then there's people on the other end who say, no, 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 none of it's allegorical. It's all literal, you know, and And I am in between. I am big time in between. I'm saying, I, I believe in miracles. I believe in the power of God. I've seen them, you know, this, uh, but I also believe that these people are coming out of a particular context. They are only able to verbalize from where they sit in their culture with the words that they have and the experiences that they know. And, and this, these ancient cultures relied on myth, just like we do, you know, we tell fairy tales to get across the purpose. We, we teach our children about Santa Claus. What do you think that is? You know? Sure. sure. But I, I'm saying that you, I think, I think our churches are doing a disservice, though, when I, I guess that's my point is that I know people that have been, they, they use that as an excuse to cast aside churches and religion because we've got the Old Testament where God's brutal and the New Testament where he wants to save everybody. And I'm, and that's, but you've given me some words to say, can we look at some context? Can we look at, um, you know what, 
you know what? It's it's not just about the Bible. There's a lot of people who say a lot of things about a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff that they have no idea. They've not gone. They've not even attempted to go deep. Okay. Maybe even shallow. But I grew up in a pretty hardcore story-oriented church, the Lutheran Missouri Synod, and I don't think that they're the harshest. But I grew up on a lot of these stories, and I can guarantee you that they were not presented for evaluation in this manner. And this and is a this is indeed a, an unusual approach. You know, people but I love it fall because on now it makes sense. Other. So I wanted to make sure that 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 I heard Woody's question and responded sorry. in a in a valid way. Woody, did you have more to to insight there? Um, no, I, I mean I. Everybody has their own view of this, um, uh, and I have mine. I, I did have one question. Our, our group had one question, and that is, um, okay. I think you said that was it. This last part, just these last few chapters of Judges were written a couple of hundred years later? Yes. Yes. In fact, most all of what we are reading was written much later. The Bible, this, the Hebrew, what, basically what happens is after Israel and Judah split and have their civil war and split, and the Northern kingdom of Israel is carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, the Assyrians their model of captivity um, when they conquered um, countries was they would take all the people out of the country that they lived in and scatter them throughout the Assyrian empire. And they would take people from Assyria and migrate them, immigrate them to the conquered country. The Babylonians who conquered the Southern kingdom of Judah had a different model their model was to take the people they conquered, pick them up en masse, and plop them down in Babylonia and leave the country basically empty. You know, they would have little puppet governors in there and the poorest of the poor would be in there. And um, and so these two models had a dramatic effect on how the Israelites responded to their captivity. The ones who got scattered ended up basically alone, isolated, it's called the diaspora, and they, for all intents and purposes, disappeared into the into that Assyrian society. But the lump that stayed in Babylonia together retained some of their national identity. And in order to do that, they collectively sat down and wrote stuff. They wrote down everything they could remember about what had happened to Israel. So and what so, must have been happening 200 years later to make these, to make people want to write these allegories with such really, I think, outrageous uh, consequences? Yes, exactly. Something must have been happening. And yes, so they, what they did was they had whatever they took with them. They had their stories, they had their memories. And by that point in the nations of Israel and Judah, prophets, as I told you in this lesson, prophets were raised up by God in these end, the last couple of hundred years that they had to try to get them to stop hurtling towards destruction. And those prophets were major personalities, um, like Isaiah, for example, Jeremiah, for example, these were big personalities. These were the rock stars of that time. And they gathered 
disciples. They gathered together kind of almost schools. We, in scholar, the scholars call them schools, the school of Isaiah, you know, um, and, the, and the, so those initial prophets would teach um, their disciples, just like Jesus taught his disciples. And, uh, and they would write down things and collect material. Well, when they get picked up, when, when Assyria begins to threaten it, the Northern kingdom of Israel, the school of Isaiah, those prophets migrate South and end up many of them being taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And so when they write down their memories, a lot of what they write down is how they remembered viewing things from the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, the northern kingdom didn't think a whole lot of the southern kingdom. You know, the southern kingdom was where uh, Jerusalem was and the temple was, you know. So you, um, you see what the things they write have a different lens, a different, different vocabulary, their place names are different, um, how they view the kingship is different, uh, how they view the sacrificial system is different from the people who were in schools of prophets in the South and got carried off into um, captivity. So within the Bible, even within the stories that they wrote down that we have been studying, we are getting different viewpoints of the same stories, kind of in what we would call a mashup sometimes, <laughs> you know? Um, so for the most part, the bulk of the Hebrew Bible was written after exile. By so, Gail, um, so do, do scholars think then that when you have those, those stories that are combined, like the creation story and, and Noah and these others, that it was perhaps people from these two different schools who had written this down and then somebody tried to compile them together and they came out kind of awkward yes. coming from an Israel perspective and a Judah perspective? Yes, exactly. The, the biggest um, exception that we'll see is when we get to King Josiah, um, as we're stud before that everybody gets carried off into exile, they have a big um, revival and under King Josiah. And it's under him that Deuteronomy gets written down. And there's a big class of scholars, you know, and an editor that we scholars actually call the Deuteronomist, you know, because they have the, their particular view of things. And there's a, a class that is a, what is called the priestly class, you know, where they have their view of how important the sacrifices are and stuff, you know, so their voice is what we heard back in Leviticus, right? Um, so, so we can, we can read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and see the different voices talking about the same exact thing, but from different perspectives. So yes, the, the Deuteronomist is considered an editor of the school of material that that school gathered. And the, um, so yes, some of the things they, you know, appear to be written by a single voice, like Hosea is clearly written by a single voice. Okay. It's um, those shorter books, but the longer ones like Isaiah, um, were written by the school of Isaiah, not like Isaiah himself 
clearly based on his stuff, incorporating his stuff, but it was done after him. Gail, is that when they took the six scholars from the 12 tribes and isolated that was later. That okay. was, yes, that was a little bit later, but not a whole lot later. It was, it was definitely later. Um, uh, that was in, I think, around 300 BCE. So yeah. the, so they went into captivity at between 722 and 586 around in there. So there, the Bible would have been started to be written down at about five, you know, beginning in 586 and going forward a couple of hundred years, they're writing that stuff down. And then by the time we get to 300 BCE, that's when the Greek translation comes in. Uh, and the reason for that shift was because there was a power shift in the world. The power, the power shift of empire in the world was originally Egypt, switched to the Assyrians, switched to the Babylonians, switched to the Greeks, switched to the Romans. And we are going to actually see those influences as we walk through scripture. So the Greek translation happened when the world began speaking Greek. I got to leave. Okay. Okay. Bye. Did y'all have any other um, responses to what you would say to people? Well, one of the things that we talked about in our group was that um, that if you just read it and you and you believe where it says, and God said to do this, and God said to do that, and God, you know, became angry and blah blah blah, that what we're interpreting is that this all was coming from God, rather than this was the understanding of the people in a violent culture. They were surrounded by violent cultures. And so events that happened or things that they did that were violent in nature, they put the coloring on it of this is what God told us to do. And this is how God told us to do it. Um, but that you have to look at the cultural context and the fact that frequently, you know, people misunderstood what God was directing them to do. Right. As, as in Jephthah, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Specifically. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I actually had a similar conversation about this a little while ago and somebody was talking about barbaric ages and now, and I said, you know, I'd be interested to see if a historian after this age would write about us because I don't know that, You know, I'm just going to, in, in general, when we look at, you know, school shooting type stuff. So we're not in a history that practices barbaric thing or sacrifices, but we've definitely got some things going on that we're not dedicating enough time to try to understand, to break down, to help. And there's enough other, you know, very poor behavior out there that definitely is not leading towards God that just because we're not carrying swords and shields doesn't mean we're living above that standard, I think. Well, I, I think we're certainly raping each other. Say it again. I said we're still raping each other. 
and there's and there's violence and there's you know just horrendous acts yeah. against well, uh, other people you know we're in that information age and boy all that information is sure doing good for us <laughs> but I do, you know, speaking of information, one of the things that um, I, when I try to respond to people, I find these questions difficult because, you know, this kind of stuff that people ask me all the time. And, and I try not to whitewash God. I try to be honest and validate that they are reading what they're reading in there, that violence and that genocide and all that stuff is in there. But like Marlene said, it's often more a reflection of the people than it is of God. Yeah. Um, and, and a reflection of the fact that God meets us where we are and works with whatever we give him to work with, right? Right. Um, he, he doesn't ask us to change all at once. Um, he meets us wherever we are. And so I appreciate very much that these authors did not make this into a fairy tale and flatten the characters. I take great comfort in the depth of wickedness of these people <laughs> in these stories and in their struggles and in how bad they were and yet how they tried from time to time to trust God and to walk in faith and how God honored that, even multiplied it beyond the little tiny bit that they gave him, you know, um, he would, he would just make the most of that little bit that they would be willing to offer him. So. Well, and I think, know, I, think um, I was thinking I, back. Oh, go ahead, Russ. Sorry. You know, it, it, again, Gail, I think, you know, my, sim my simple statement is again, while all of the Bible was written for you, not all of it is written to you. And, and it's really why I personally, again, I, I kind of, I hang uh, significance on uh, 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Some say divide the word of truth and so forth. Yes. Marlene, what did you have? Oh, I was I was gonna say I was I was thinking back on what you said, I think it was last week, um, about the fact that when God gives us gifts, they are not rescinded regardless of what we do with them. And I think that um, we we see even in this story the story of the different Levites. Um, these were people who were set aside for a specific task. And even when the Levite used his gifts and calling in the service of idols, God didn't strike him dead. And, um, and so it's another one of those things, I think, that goes back to this unbelievable capacity for compassion and understanding and love that God has for us, that even when we're awful, um, we're not completely obliterated. And um, it's, it's in that way, it's also, I think, kind of a comfort. I've been reading this book on original blessing that sort of turns the whole concept of original sin 
on its head and talks about how God is always there for us. God is always engaged with us. There's not this, this, you know, I can't look at you kind of concept from God's perspective that it's all in how we are looking at God from our perspective that um, tells us we're unworthy and we're so despicable that we can't be loved. Yes. And that, you know, if, if you get nothing else out of this whole course, that's what you need to get, that God does not despise us. God delights in us. The whole idea of original sin was invented by St. Augustine 400 years after Christ, just so you know. That is so far from where God's heart is as East is from West. Hmm. I've heard people say, you know, something about being bad or uh, doing bad things. And, and I'm, I think what we need to also remember is if we were talking to a child, we wouldn't say you're bad. You've done a bad thing. We would say you're making bad choices because we aren't bad. We are in his image and we seek after his heart. Even those that aren't believers aren't bad. They just are not taking proper choices, you know? They're missing out on some blessings for sure. Huh? They're missing out on some blessings for sure. Absolutely. But I think we need to be kind to ourselves, you know? Yep. Absolutely. Um, I think obviously, sorry. Go Um, ahead, Erica. I've only been here, what, three weeks? So I only have two tools so far. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'm excited about going back. But this whole conversation today I think it's, and, and similar to what you said, Julia, there's a piece of me that is grateful that we don't, that we're kind of on our own spiritual journey where we first start to understand certain things of the Bible as if when we were babies and we had to only drink milk. And then we grew out of that and started to have a little bit of the blended food and then grew out of that. And, you know, we're, I think I'm appreciative of hearing this because I think I would be so overwhelmed if at a spiritual younger age, I would have learned some of this stuff. I think it would have been scary. I would have, it probably would have turned me away from God. It would have been so overwhelming that I would have internalized what's wrong with me. Like I, and so there's this balance that I find myself of trying to extend myself grace that I that we are all in this unique spiritual journey and some of us may still be kind of in this milk stages and some of us have already graduated to the steak pieces <laughs> like Pastor Gill I, I do believe that you are have a gift of interpreting and understanding this in very unique ways that some of us may not be there and it doesn't make us bad and it doesn't make us not not in a in a level that we may never I mean we may get to that point but Something that keeps that I keep going back to a couple of weeks ago, we attended a conference and a gentleman by his name is um, he's a priest called Richard Rohr. And I don't know if some of you have heard of him, but I really appreciated that. He just says anything that is infinite without end or beginning, the human mind cannot comprehend. 
And so that to me has brought comfort that even though I may still be in some of this bread stages of my spiritual journey, and I still may not quite understand some of this complex things that I, I can rest in the freedom of knowing that it is not my job to comprehend his infinite love, his infinite grace, his infinite power. And yet there is a piece of it that I get to be excited that I'm in this unique spiritual journey that I may get to understand some more complex stuff. But if I'm not there yet, I, I keep going back to what he says. So it, it, for whatever reason, I need to trust that I'm not there yet. It's not about judgment on where my spiritual journey is, but it's, and not to judge other spiritual journey because it's unique. So I think that is what I've kind of been feeling this last three weeks as I'm growing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm kind of graduating from the milk stages and spirituality to maybe a little bit of bread. And it's I'm exciting. A teenager. Yeah, it's exciting, <laughs> but it does, it, it is a humbling piece because it doesn't guarantee that. And I'm going to graduate into understanding some more of this complex stuff. I'm grateful for it. But like even this week's study, I feel like I got to rewatch this because there was yeah. so much that I feel like I missed that. I unpack like, it. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's something that I have kind of. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you spoke up and said that Erica. Um, yes. Because, because we are always going to be at different places in our spiritual journeys and none of us ever arrives it, mm-hmm. but it's, if you arrive you have not been following god because <laughs> god <laughs> is infinite all right there's always more and i would like to offer an, a different paradigm in fact than the bread and the milk and the meat i think that is true um, that clearly we start with children and we tell them the stories and we simplify the stories and we try to introduce them to God, you know, and so there's this, this um, almost feel of concentric circles or moving from milk to meat, but I see it as layers. Mm-hmm. And, and so whenever we hear a teacher, that teacher is giving us a layer over a particular set of of studies, of of concepts, of stories, of whatever it is. I'm giving you a really big, big, big layer because it's going to cover the whole Bible. But but, but each teacher gives us a new layer. And as we experience God, the Holy Spirit adds that experience as a layer onto those stories as well. And so each story begins to acquire a richness and a patina um, that leads to more and more understanding of not only that story, but how it connects to the, all the other stories and where God is in that story. Um, so don't don't feel like there is some finite way to understand any one of these stories. Or that where you are in your understanding of that story is less than where anyone mm-hmm. else is. Because that's not how the spirit works. Can I share something quickly about that? Um, you, I shared a few weeks ago that I feel like I was called by the Holy Spirit because I was like five and went to 
church and Sunday school on my own without my family. It was because my friends were doing it, but I didn't even go to their churches and I kept going back. And when I was little, I did hear the stories and they were kind of a scary context. But recently, I think what I have kind of impacted about this as far, because I have been also a little bit trapped in the, you know, the, the, wow, there's this big paradigm shift between Old and New Testament. And I feared my parents. I make a joke about this because I was ADHD and they're like, why didn't you get in trouble? I said, because I think I feared my parents more than God. But I think that because of that, I grew up in a fear authority mindset. And I think that it contributed to fearing some of the stories that I heard, you know, don't, don't make him angry kind of thing. And Eric, I'm in my fifties and I'm just impacting that. I think that impacted how I view a lot of the things of the Bible that I never figured out before. And this is a whole new ball game. Like Gail is talking to me in layers. When you're talking about the layers, I think of in school, in social studies, we do Texas American world. And then we repeat it. Texas American world as the grades go through and we add layers to them. You have Texas history two or three times, like seventh grade, you know, fourth grade, seventh grade, 10th grade, and then, you know, layers like that. But, and I don't know if what I'm saying makes any sense to you, Gail, or to anybody else, but, you know, when we look at context of where people are, when they tell a story, that is the whole Bible, the context of where people are. And we know that it's the inspired word of God, but myself, I'm just now figuring out that I think I feared a lot of things that weren't there to be feared. It's because I grew up in the atmosphere of fear and authority. Oh, yes. That's beautiful. Does that make sense at all? It does make sense. Um, And we're way, way past time. And that seems like a good place to stop because we've stopped at an open door at a threshold um, that we all share um, where we can do these studies and see them as a starting point um, in a dialogue with God and with spirit um, rather than a a finite endpoint. And I think that's a lovely place to be. So I'm going to stop there. Love you. We get to, we're done with judges. Oh, thank you, Jesus. We get to do a really sweet story next time. We get to do Ruth. That's a lovely little story. <laughs> you guys, you guys you take care. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Question. Did you get your question answered that you started to ask? I didn't really. Um, what I was trying, what I wanted to know if anybody knew, I always heard that the Bible was inspired by God. And then about 15 years ago, we went to a very conservative Bible or a very conservative church. And they started, they were taught that the word, the Bible is absolutely factual and literal. That every single word in the Bible was factual. And if you question any of those words of the Bible, you might as well throw the whole Bible out. Because if you don't believe it's literal, then the whole book is a lie. When did that, I never heard that growing up and I, you know, wanted, just kind of curious, when did that all start? 
That actually is a very recent phenomena um, that um, grew in importance over the last um, 150, 200 years. Um, and, and it's not that there weren't literalists ever, but but what you experienced is very recent in theology and doctrine. So I don't know what to tell you, except that I hope that you see through new eyes at this point and don't. Oh, definitely. Um, That's because at the time it seemed wrong to me, even when I was hearing them, you know, from the pulpit and the Bible studies and stuff like that saying it, 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 to me, it felt not right. And then through this class, it's like, I'm learning. Yep. I, I had the right understanding at the time because that was really kind of, a strange way to interpret the Bible. <laughs> if you've read it very much, it is a, it's a, it, I would hate to have to defend that position, but there's a lot of people that do. So, and, you know, and I, and when I say a lot of people, people that know God, you know, they just are stuck in that particular culture. And so I think it restricts um, their understanding and it sometimes causes them to do things that I would say myself are not, um, consistent with what I think the Holy Spirit directs us to do. But I think the same thing for people, for any of us, for me, you know, my understanding is faulty. I can tell you that right now. My understanding of God is faulty. My understanding of scripture is faulty. I'm sure that five years from now, I'll go back and need to look at one of these videos and I'll, and I'll just like smack my head, you know, and say, I cannot believe I said that. I'm just putting this out there as a starting place for you. Just trying to give you some skills, give you, uh, we're flying over this at a bird's eye level, believe it or not. And, and I'm giving you the, the contours of the land so that you don't get lost when you're out there by yourself. I have a completely off the wall question. Yeah. And that is in, in, um, I think, past uh, books, they've talking, uh, they've spoken about things that were being written down and that people could read them. And, and I was curious because I never, I, I never really thought that there was literacy in the ancient Hebrews. And so where did this idea of the fact that they could actually read or that they were teaching people how to read that's a great from. question, Julie. Um, actually, the Egyptians did um, write uh, quite a bit, and they were that first world power in, that that we saw in the very early stages of the stories. Um, but for well, would they have had their slaves? How to? I mean, would they attract no, the Hebrews? No, the slaves would not have re- been able to. Uh, the, this is going to be a ruling class, a scribe class, people whose job it was to read and write. That set of educated people, the scribes, who were also the lawyers, okay, um, of society, the interpreters of law, that class is who wrote this stuff down. And that continued actually all the way into Jesus' time. The rank and file did not know how to read and write. So occasionally you'll see a scholar say, well, in the Bible, in this story that we're studying, it said this child read something and like 
that child wouldn't have been able to read, <laughs> you know, uh, you see these anachronisms in the story, um, but you're absolutely right. The, the rank and file did not read and write. As Thank we you. go forward in history, more and more people read and write, but it's not necessarily at all common. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. All right. Love you. Bye. See you next week. We'll, we'll have a lighthearted story next week. It's my favorite. I love, I love it. Bye-bye.